We want to help them see what they're doing is very evil. We feel it's our duty to stand up and speak against the immoral industry. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Color me intrigued. All right, let's do this. This is National Demystified. I am your host, Hoot Jackson. I kid. That's an inside joke about this episode that you've not yet listened to, but you will get it eventually. I am your host, Alex Steed. National Demystified is typically a show in which I try to get to know the city better by talking with the folks who live, work, agitate, and make art here. This, though, is the latest installment of our 10-part mini-series Music City Tales from the 1980s. This is the first of a two-part episode about Lower Broad. That's what people call Lower Broadway, if you are unfamiliar. It's about how the area went from being the sort of place most folks didn't engage after dark to becoming a tourist destination. Nearly every event mentioned in this episode is based on newspaper reporting from Lower Broad at the time, or on Lower Broad at the time, I should say. I read close to a thousand articles to research this episode, which uh, (laughs) uh, maybe is a testament to me not being well. (laughs) But it's it's based on folks who saw it and folks who were there. Uh, And also, it includes a good deal of detail from people who shared their experiences with me as well. While the primary uh, characters in the episode are fictional, their experiences and insights are based on those that belong to real people. And quickly, before we start, please follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Please subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. It really does help. Oh, and National Demystified is brought to you by Knack Factory, a video content production firm with offices here in the city. It is distributed by We Own This Town, a collection of podcasts produced by Nashvillians. Finally, I want to thank Beverly Griffith and Carolyn Kendrick for offering voices to some of the characters in this episode. I get sick of the sound of my own voice, and Beverly and Carolyn helped to break up that monotony. Beverly is the co-host of a podcast I love called Sex in the Music City, and she's a realtor and a vintage fiend. You can find her on Instagram at Adora House Nashville. And Carolyn Kendrick is a singer-songwriter who just released an EP called Tear Things Apart. You can find her on Instagram at Carolyn B. Kendrick. Oh, and one more thing. I really should offer a content and trigger warning for violence, violence against women, rape, police brutality, and more. Lower Broad was really rough. There's no better way to put it. And I try to convey that as non-gratuitously as possible, but I also try to do it clearly and honestly. I've tried to be as sensitive as possible with the subject matter, but it still may be a lot for some listeners to handle. Okay, that's enough of that. Let's travel back to the Lower Broad of the 1980s. Her streets are paved with memories, her roads are lined with dreams. There's magic in her music, come see what we mean. All roads lead to Nashville, you're never far away. All roads lead to Nashville, Music City, USA. See the grand old opera, clap your hands, see music. Music City, USA. All roads lead to Nashville, Music City, USA. 
You're not like your coworkers at the furniture shop who are close to your age and that you are actually from Nashville. They're a couple of years older and they came here to make it, to drink at the bars that Hank drank at and maybe to bump into Waylon or Tom T. Hall. You don't even listen to country music. You all work in the stockroom together. You load, you unload. You've got a year before you're legal to drink. You've worked here for six months and it's okay. It's a family-owned business that almost goes back to the turn of the century. The boss shares the story with anyone who will listen. He says Lower Broad, which is where Broadway runs from about 6th down to the river, has been known for furniture going back to the teens, when all the businesses downtown, in the dozens by the 20s, would get together and put on promotional discount sales in the fall, and it was treated like a downtown festival. This was all while the Ryman was making a name for itself as an entertainment powerhouse, but still long before the Opry began to call the Ryman its home, helping to establish Lower Broadway as a primary tourist destination. And here you are now, six years after the Opry's vacated the Ryman and taken with it its destination status. When the Opry went over to Donaldson in 1972, it took with it the 325,000 tourists that were visiting annually. They left in part because the Ryman was in great disrepair and at times a hostile environment for shows inside and out. And besides, National Life, who'd bought the Opry back in 1963, had realized, as everyone else would later, that the name of the game in Nashville was in ownership, in real estate. And so now, in 1980, Lower Broad is turned into a wasteland. The bosses have two minds about this. Long gone are the days in which a family would dress up, go out and buy furniture, and the neighborhood is a dump. Many are scared to even come down here, including native Nashvillians, not just tourists. They hear there are drunks everywhere and prostitutes that'll pick your pocket, even if you're not looking for a date. There are porno theaters everywhere. And they're right. It's true. It's what it's like. Good people just don't come downtown anymore. At the same time, keeps overhead low and therefore the price is low with it. An affordable bedroom set makes an otherwise scary visit worthwhile. Everybody knows that the best deals on furniture are downtown. Your parents don't love that you work on Lower Broad, your mom specifically. She works for Metro and she knows the calls the police get. Your father's a little more optimistic and he's just happier working. And he gave you a 32 snub nose and showed you how to use it so he thinks you're invincible. Just don't walk aimlessly after dark, he reminds you time and again. Every once in a while, they ask you to swing by Acme, a feed and seed down on 2nd Avenue, on your way home to pick up provisions for your little brother's guinea pig. Sometimes, when there's a conflict regarding the car, you'll have to take the bus in, and it'll drop you off at 4th. When you have to take it back home, men will look you up and down and ask you how much, and you keep your hand on that 32 in your purse, and you tell them to f*** off. You don't tell your parents that this is what happens. Both of your coworkers are 19, just old enough to get into and play the bars. Matt is a country boy from West Virginia. Andrew is a recovering punk from Boston. Matt plays whenever he's not working. You're not exactly sure when Andrew finds the time because he's an amateur historian. If the musician thing doesn't work out in two years, he says, he'll go on to college. We're four.
NBC Magazine looks at U.S. Senator Jesse Helms and profiles actor Alan Alda Sunday night at 11.30 on 4 WSM-TV Nashville. One day Matt comes in and says he never believed he'd ever find himself turned off by the attention and affection of women, but he finally gotten sick of being approached by hookers on the sidewalk outside of work. He then looks at you and asks if you've ever thought about going to work out there. He says you're real pretty and you'd probably do real well out there and he laughs and laughs and laughs out loud and you know he thinks he doesn't mean anything by it but you tense up and you get real quiet. Andrew sees this happen and he tries to change the tone by saying legal prostitution is part of the city's history. You've never heard this before. Based on what the boss has said, you figured that things got real bad in the 1970s and the hookers came in. But Andrew says that this all goes back to the Civil War, when the occupying army was set up in Nashville. Before the war, there were just about 200 prostitutes in operation. But by 1863, due to the demand created by the soldiers there, there were about 1,500. Concerned that rates of venereal disease were injuring more men than battlefield wounds, there were attempts to literally ship the women out by riverboat, but Louisville didn't want them, nor did Cincinnati, and so they all made their way back to Nashville. Since shipping them out didn't work, Lieutenant Colonel George Spaulding set up a prostitution registry and an operational fee that financed treatment of VD, and the profession was effectively legalized in the city. They operated in a red light district called Smoky Row, much of which overlapped with where Lower Broad is today. The city still struggles to maintain its relationship with the legality of sex for sale. On break, you read an article about how the classic Cat 2, a nearby strip club, is reconciling with new laws formulated to create more space between customers and dancers. There doesn't seem to be anything to prohibit body painting as long as they don't touch certain areas, said Mrs. Patricia Cottrell, Alcohol Beverage Commission Assistant Director. But if, in the midst of this body painting, a person's hand were to wander to another area, such as the breasts, buttocks, anus, or genitals, then the club could lose its liquor license. The boss says all the tourists are going to Music Row these days. That's the new it place to be for t-shirts and trinket shops. But it doesn't bother him none because tourists don't buy furniture. He says Mayor Fulton is trying like hell to get downtown cleaned up, and he's happy from a city pride perspective. But again... Out-of-towners just don't buy ottomans and coffee tables. The mayor is also looking at building a civic center. The city's been trying at this for some time. Until recently, it was down to Broadway or the Gulch. A development group was just going to hand over a sliver of the Gulch if the city wanted it, because a civic center there would be advantageous for a hotel building project they've got going on. The boss was hoping the Gulch thing was going to work out but increasingly it's looking like this thing is going to go down in Lower Broad with the hope of other development following. Then Smokey and the Bandit move over. Dukes of Hazard, watch out! It's Nashville Grab, a world premiere movie. This country singer's been kidnapped by female convicts and every Smokey in Nashville is in hot pursuit. It stars Jeff Conaway, Diane Kay, Gary Sandy, Christina Raines, Betty Thomas, Slim Pickens, and Henry Gibson. Nashville Grab, a world premiere movie right after Chips, one week from tonight on NBC. 
The boss always tells you to be careful on your way out of a shift, but today he tells you to be extra careful. Yesterday, two prison escapees landed themselves in merchants and got into a shootout with the police. Two cops were wounded, and one of the escapees took five bullets to his body and arms. The boss said it was a miracle everyone survived. It's one of a few shootings that have taken place this year on the street. A few months later, on Christmas, you'll think of merchants and all the folks who'll go there for the free holiday meal. Andrew said he was going to stop by because someone else told him Farron Young was supposed to make an appearance there. You'll think about how nice it is that Merchants opens its doors to people in need in this way on Christmas until your mind will wander and drift towards that shootout. There must have been so much blood. It's 1982 and you work with numbers and papers and stuff in the office of the furniture store. Andrew's two-year college music ultimatum has passed, but he's given up on the college thing and he works as a bartender at a nearby honky-tonk. He still reads all the time and he doesn't play music as much. Matt started gigging full-time last year. Now you operate on opposite schedules, so you don't really see him that much anymore, but you're more or less okay with that. At 19, you can finally go to bars without the help of your sister's ID. Last week at Tootsie's, you ran into Harold, who said he's from New Mexico. You read at the bar, and he just sat there quietly until he had a couple beers in him, and he introduced himself and told you he'd arrived in town to play music. You asked if he knew Matt or Andrew, and he said he knew Andrew for sure, but he was a little hazy on who Matt was. Then he said a whole lot real fast. He's Navajo, he said, and he was raised on a reservation before going into the Navy. His father died when he was a kid, motorcycle accident. Then he had another beer, and it got harder to understand what he was saying. Something about how he went out on the road looking for work and just landed in Nashville. Something about knowing a few different stars here already. He just needed to find them. Then he went silent and he got intense. Today you read in the paper that Harold Nelson was found dead in an alley behind Lower Broad. He was face down in the winter rain, his hair caked with mud an empty bottle of whiskey by his side. According to the article, he spent his time on couches and suffered delusions. With the help of the Tennessee Indian Council, he'd stayed in some shelters here and there. Then he presumably stumbled into an alley and drowned. You find the last line of the story chilling. It will cost the family $1,100 to bury Harold Nelson. They don't have the money and they don't know how they will get it. You look up the number for the Indian Council in the yellow pages and you find the Nelson's family address. You send $20 and a note to say that you're sorry and you wish you could send more. You run into Andrew a few weeks later and you tell him about Harold, who he'd already heard about over at the bar. Andrew's harried and he tells you that he'd just been bailed out of jail. He says, you know how there are police everywhere now and they're almost as scary as the people on the street. He was at Merchants getting a beer, and there was a band loading in, and the cops told them that they couldn't loiter on the sidewalk. But they weren't loitering, Andrew said. They were loading in. So this woman at the bar sees this all happening out the window. She says her husband is in the band, and it looks like he's getting arrested, and she goes out there. Andrew said that he waited a minute, and then he heard the woman scream, so he went out to see what was happening. She's got a cop's hand around her neck, and he's bent her over the car, and she's getting kicked. 
So Andrew asks what the f is going on and more people come out and the cops arrest everyone there, including a manager. There are nine of them in total. Reba, the owner of Merchants, had to bail out all nine of them for $63 a head. The band and wife ended up crashing at Andrew's place, and the husband told Andrew that the woman wasn't doing well. She isn't talking much. You ask what happened next, and Andrew says he doesn't know. When he woke up the next morning, they'd all split, leaving behind a note that thanked him and said that they were just going to head back to California. You tell the boss this, and he says that he's not surprised. The mayor's been trying to clean up this place for development, and it's going to get messy for everybody. He says he worries that we'll get to a point where people are no longer scared of the drunks and bums and hookers, and they'll just start to worry about the police instead. He then changes the subject to say, speaking of development, a few of the businesses down here are all taking advantage of these interest-free loans to make their buildings look more historic. He says that whether or not it's good for business, the town's going to blow up in 20 or 30 years. The next time you see your mom, you tell her about Andrew's story, and she says it sounds like maybe he's exaggerating a bit. Everybody needs a friend, a neighbor to turn to. Person to person is what it's all about. Stop and look around you. You'll see this in action. We get involved and we're getting the good news out. We're friends you can turn to. In 1983, you're still in the office. Amy, a friend from high school, has moved back to town after breaking up with her girlfriend, and you share an apartment together. She waits tables at Say When 2 on the 400 block of Broadway. Some months after you move in together, her parents come over for dinner. They bring over bottles of wine with names that you have no idea how to pronounce. Unlike your parents, they're very hip. They are self-professed children of the 60s, whatever that means. Amy's mom is an art teacher. Her dad's a psychiatrist. They said that earlier that day, they'd read that a bunch of Moonies had been protesting porn outside of the theaters on Lower Broad, and they chuckled about it. In the paper, one of the Moonies, who Amy's dad clarified is a religious cult, had said, We want to help them see what they're doing is very evil. We feel it's our duty to stand up and speak against the immoral industry. You listen as Amy, her mom, and her dad go back and forth saying that all these moralists complaining about porn and drunks are trying to solve symptoms of problems, not the problems themselves. Amy's dad says that a decade ago there were 6,500 people in psychiatric hospitals, but for a number of reasons, some good and some bad, the systems that sustain those hospitals were dismantled at state and federal levels, and now there are only about 2,500 people being served by them. A lot of the people who were released went out into the streets without proper care. Faced with slashed and diminished access to services, folks with new or emerging issues also have nowhere to go. So they all cluster in areas that are depressed for one reason or another. It keeps rents low, and that's where the quote, lower class and underworld businesses go that everyone else looks down upon. Porn, prostitution, drinking, even honky tonks. 
Amy's mom underscores that there isn't enough money downtown to pay the rent for all those buildings. The same people in the suburbs bemoaning all this filth are the very people who are keeping it alive by coming into the city to buy drugs, buy sex, buy porn, to get drunk, to listen to the devil's music. Everybody laughs. You say that what she's said reminds you of how your boss once told you that the cheap rents downtown attract people to buy cheap furniture. She tells you exactly. The same principle runs true across the board. A few months later, you run into Matt while visiting Amy at work. You haven't seen each other in over a year, though you hear the music thing has worked out okay. He seems to be playing every night, and that matches up with how he looks. Matt seems a little strung out. His jaws clenched hard, and by the time you run into him, he's already had a few. He tells you that last week he was at Classic Cat. He went down with a friend after the show. You remember when he asked you if you'd ever be interested in working on the street and you blank out for a second before realizing his mood shifted quite abruptly. He says he was one of the 70 people who got robbed at the cat by a guy who came in with a shotgun and took everything he could at gunpoint. The guy got behind the DJ booth and pointed the gun at a dancer and made her dance without any music going. And when Matt saw that, he laughed for a second at how absurd the whole thing seemed before it registered how real the situation was. Then he got real quiet. The robber had everyone lay down and put whatever they had in front of them. He ordered one of the club bouncers to check everyone's pockets to make sure that they weren't holding back. Another bouncer tried to rush the guy, but tripped in the DJ booth and went down hard. Another miracle nobody was hurt. Matt heard that some customers had $4,000 in jewelry stolen. He said he was lucky to only have a night's worth of tips on hand. He joked that sometimes it pays to be poor, and other than all that, he's actually doing pretty well, all things considered. You and Amy start seeing each other, which neither of you anticipated or saw coming, but it's lovely anyway. She's your first serious partner. Her parents handle it much better than yours, who insists on calling Amy your friend as if friend is in italics. The boss says he always knew you were a little light in the loafers, but it's none of his business because you're a hard worker and that's that. By the middle of the year, it's going well, but you don't see each other too often because while she's still tending bar at night, Amy's parents have gotten her a job in the local office of U.S. Congressman Bill Boner. Amy is in constituent services, which means she addresses calls and correspondence from people in the district and brings their problems, complaints, and concerns to the attention of the office and, ultimately, Boner himself. One night at the bar, Amy meets Karen, who is a couple of years older than the two of you. She moved here from Florida to write songs. She comes in every night with a notebook in hand and nurses one beer over the course of two hours before ordering another. Amy starts sneaking Karen free beers. Karen doesn't know anyone here, and so Amy tells you about her, and then you start to coming in to hang a bit. You find you have a handful of things in common, and it becomes a thing on and off throughout July and August, till she stops coming in. It isn't until you see her face in the paper that you learn she was shot in the head in her room at the Key Hotel. She was killed the day after she testified against two men she said raped her in a van that same week. In the testimony, she said the men who raped her thought she was a prostitute, and they were out to do harm to prostitutes. She convinced them to let her go. She said she wouldn't tell anyone about it. She had them drop her off at her hotel, and once free, she called the police. The next day, she was dead. According to authorities, the alleged rapist had alibis that placed them elsewhere. You sob off and on for a week, and then you and Amy get real quiet for the next month or so. The boss starts to celebrate some of the changes he's been seeing around town. 
He says he was skeptical at first, and sometimes he's got his problems with Fulton, but it feels like there are less drunks and hookers in crime. It's far from a destination still, but it feels like there's been progress. He says the mayor's project to revitalize the riverfront recently wrapped and open to the public, and it's a lot nicer than he expected it'd be. It feels fresh and new, and it precedes the next big step, which is the Civic Center, plans for which were recently revealed to the public. They say it'll cost around $140 million. Still, he says, tourists don't buy furniture, but maybe new restaurants will come to town and maybe some of the adult shops where, you know, people do more than just watch dirty movies there. Maybe they'll close down and it'll bring in folks who've been staying away. Maybe if people get less scared of being stabbed, shot, or raped, they'll come down and they'll spend more money on furniture. You just nod, you fake a smile. By the next year, you're still in the office at the shop. Amy is still in constituent services and serving beers at the bar. You both celebrate birthdays in January, and so you both go to the old spaghetti factory down on 2nd. You get the spaghetti and clam sauce, which they say is the favorite of Italian fishermen. It comes with a salad and dressing, sourdough bread, and it's much fancier than anything you ever ate at home as a kid. Amy gets spaghetti with mushroom sauce. You share a decanter of wine for two. With tip, the meal costs under $10. Driving down second, you notice that there's been some growth since the restaurant opened a couple years back. There's a little bit of office space and some shops you hadn't noticed the last time you came down here. At dinner, you talk about how Jack Speller is finally closing up shop and retiring from the pawn business. You tell Amy how he told you that on more than one occasion, he'd seen pregnant mothers pawn wedding rings so that they could make deposits on hospital rooms. One time the boss told you that Speller had taken a horse for collateral, and when he first moved his operation to Lower Broad, right before the Opry left town, he had a clothing section. The boss says he shut it down because people could increasingly buy clothes, both cheap at department stores and on credit. The boss said people like Jack could laugh off Lower Broad's reputation, saying no matter the conditions, the pawn game is always doing all right. Amy says that she's heard that in an attempt to further beautify the area, Mayor Fulton's looking at putting flower planters down in Lower Broad. She's already hearing complaints that the intention is nice, but they're just going to end up being seats for the bums and the hookers. A few months later, you're at Tootsie's with Andrew, and he points out that Joe Strummer and The Clash are at the bar. Andrew tells you that The Clash hasn't been the same since Nicky and Mick left the band, and punk was never your thing, so you have no idea what he's talking about. You both eavesdrop and hear Strummer ask if Hank Williams really sat at these seats and he seems genuinely impressed when he hears that he did. He then complains loudly that young people aren't paying attention to politics anymore, not like they used to, and you recall how Amy says that almost all the calls the office gets are from people who are in their 50s or older, complaining about the winos, about the bums, about the prostitutes. Strummer says to his companion, Our message for 1984 is forget drugs. Drugs are over. Let's vote. On his way out, you make eye contact, and he asks if they'll see you at the show tonight. 
You ask where they're playing, and he says the Vanderbilt gym, and you laugh at the idea of these British punks playing at Vandy and forget to answer. He smiles and laughs himself. You catch your bearings and you tell him that a couple people in Nashville designed a game inspired by Monopoly that's called 16th Avenue. Instead of Boardwalk and Park Place, it's got institutions like the Bluebird on it and Tootsie's. And one of the things that can happen is you can get, quote, rolled on Lower Broadway or, quote, punk rockers smash your gear. You tell him it's on display at the Country Music Hall of Fame if he wants to see it. He laughs again and says he'll have to check it out before heading to the door. The summer's a busy one for Amy. Congressman Boner will get national media attention for teaming up with National Magazine to go undercover as a transient named Hoot Jackson. When she tells you the name, you laugh and laugh and you ask her if she's serious and she's totally serious. He did so, supposedly, to get a feel for the plight of the homeless. He wore polyester pants and a seven-day-old beard and he slept out on the street, got photographed from afar by an editorial team and lived on $5 a day. He hung out with bums on benches and at the various soup kitchens and meal centers throughout town. He would tell the press, It's an experience I will long remember, but not one I'm proud to say I have, because it acknowledges that there is a blight on the community that sooner or later we must face. Boner, previous to being a congressman, was a bank executive. Putting the undercover experience in the context of Boner's comparatively extravagant life, he would tell the press, My mind wandered back about 30 hours to the south lawn of the White House, where I had munched on Chesapeake Bay crab cakes at a congressional seafood dinner hosted by President and Mrs. Reagan. He would mention how fellow guests at the White House event would give him a hard time about the several-day-old stubble he was growing to complete his Hoot Jackson costume. You imagine him telling them what it was all for, and you envision that either everybody would laugh about Boner slumming it on the streets, or they'd think it was incredibly deep and meaningful for him to do this thing, and both scenarios make you feel a little sick. Boner ends every story about the publicity stunt with an acknowledgement that there's a lot of work to do, and these are real people who need real help. The stunt would lead to the development of a homelessness task force, which Amy says is a thing that politicians do when they know they don't have the political will to do anything tangible. One day in the fall, Amy comes home from a shift real upset. A woman at the bar had been approaching patrons, trying to sell her 10-year-old daughter. She told one guy she'd sell the girl for $200. She told another she'd sell her for a couple hours for just 30. The woman was very drunk. Earlier, she'd mentioned to somebody that she'd just left a recovery program. An employee called the cops, and by the time they showed up, the woman was out in the parking lot, kissing and fondling a man, and the little girl was wandering behind the bar. When the woman saw what was happening, that the cops were coming for her and the girl, she screamed at the police and said they could not take her daughter. But they did. That was that. Amy decided that would be her last shift. You see Andrew for the first time in a while, and he tells you he's working managing adult world, and you laugh, and he says, no, it's perfect, because he's more or less able to read throughout his shifts. 
He says the adult shops have always been under fire in one way or another, but as Fulton's efforts to revitalize Lower Broad through various development projects intensify, it's felt like the heat is hotter than normal. Earlier that year, police were inspecting porn shops along with the health department under the guise of maintaining health standards. Not just adult world, but private screenings, mini adult cinema, swingers world, L West stereo theater, and the wheel. It's still not as bad as the raid that took place the year before, where 21 porn operations were targeted and 150 people were indicted on 679 separate charges connected to drugs, prostitution, obscenity, and conspiracy laws. Fulton's committee, focused on the development of the convention center, has been pressuring owners not to renew leases with anyone in porn. Andrew says the city wants porn out of the way because those in office barely make any money off of it. Same with drugs and prostitution. They make their money on buildings and business deals. And right now, porn and prostitution are standing in the way of all that. If they were smart, he said, they'd legalize and organize it like Lieutenant Colonel Spalding did back in the 1860s. But even then, that would just be in the public's interest, not theirs. Come 1985, you and Amy move into a slightly larger apartment. You're managing the store now, and Amy's still working in constituent services, though now she's over in Mayor Fulton's office. You hear Tootsie's may be closing soon. Tootsie herself's been gone since the late 70s, but word is Tootsie's son doesn't have enough money to keep the thing going into the summer. So you call Matt and Andrew. You all go down and recall how the first time you went in there, you were using your sister's ID. Everyone says something wrote about how the city is changing. Matt asks if the boss still talks about it all the time, and Andrew says something about how, yes, it's changing, but at whose expense? And Matt says he's always said that Andrew was a pinko fag, and then he gets quiet for a second, and he tells you and Amy he didn't mean anything by it. Amy breaks the tension by joking, it's not changing too drastically. Just the other day, she saw a possum's caddy parked outside of Colonial Liquors. Matt says he'd just seen Farron Young at the Best Western Lounge, and Andrew just seen T.G. Shepard at the Stockyard. Y'all toast and you get a little quiet. Y'all know that change is here. And, for better or worse, a whole lot more is on its way. Her streets are paved with memories. Her roads are lined with dreams. There's magic in her music. Come see what we mean. All roads lead to Nashville. You're never far away. All right, everybody, that is it for part one of our Lower Broad installment. Again, this is from our mini-series Music City Tales from the 1980s. Tune in next week for an even crazier ride in which we will feature a sting operation involving a 15-year-old boy and 41 grown men. We will uh, look at how a giant hole in the ground means a whole lot to a lot of people. And we'll talk uh, about a ghost and merchants and a totally shady mayor named Hoot Jackson. Thanks so much to everyone for hanging with me through this. Thank you to Cameron Davidson for all things that uh, sound good. You made all that happen here. Finally, I want to thank Beverly Griffith and Carolyn Kendrick for offering voices to some of the characters in this episode. And thank you to We Own This Town for making this whole thing possible. I'm your host, Alex Steed. I hope to see y'all again real soon. Nashville, where the stars come out to play.